We often guard against ideas and beliefs and doctrines, and so we think that we're protecting ourselves by making our brains more intelligent about God, but really, the way idolatry works is it doesn't try to steal your ideas. Idolatry tries to steal your loves and your desires and your affections. Hey everyone, and welcome to B-Sides, where we offer further reflection on God's Word to help you grow. And these reflections are following our message, Idolatry is Heavy, coming from Isaiah chapters 41, 44, and 46. And so as I had said in our messages, in this later part of Isaiah, movements 2 and 3, which cover chapters 40 through 66, um, we're going to slow down a little bit on the pace. And actually what I'm doing in chapters 40 to 55, movement two, where there's a lot of hope coming from Isaiah to the future exiles in Babylon, um, I'm, I'm trying to group some of the sections by subject, by theme. And so we had seen the eagle's wings in chapter 40, that God's going to take them on his way through the wilderness, right? He's going to bring them back home out of our suffering, out of... uh uh, the despair and the hopelessness that we have hit rock bottom in. And he's going to bring us to the wilderness, to, to the promised land, to that place that he has made us for. Um, but we are often weary, right? And we're not able to get ourselves across there. So Isaiah 40 says that he will raise us up on wings like eagles. And we looked at how God, as we wait on him, he's actually growing us into creatures that can soar. But so, in this narrative of the second movement of Isaiah, uh, one of the problems holding us back from soaring on eagle's wings is idolatry. And so, we covered that. And I had a large smurf. He's about three feet tall. Uh, he's blue. He has black black-rimmed glasses in perfect circles. <laughs> he has a white baker's hat on. I'm, I'm sure you've seen a Smurf. And he's got white pants. But the rest of them's blue with like elfish ears. And he sat on the stage with me and I interviewed him. And it was a complete disaster because he didn't say anything. Which of course was my silly way of illustrating what Isaiah was saying about idolatry. It doesn't do anything. Now of course, Isaiah's using what you would call satire. He's totally exaggerating and making fun of idolatry. But in reality, idolatry isn't something to make light of because it is, it is incredibly heavy. It is burdensome and it will weary us so that we can't make our way on that path through the wilderness that God has opened up for us. And so that's the danger of idolatry. And as we finished the evening, we took communion, uh, I don't know if it was on the message or not, because it was after the communion. I had shared that it hit me that for some of us, God might be heavy in our lives. God might feel like a weight. And Jesus said, take my yoke for as easy, my burden is light. But for some of us, that doesn't ring true. God is somebody that just feels uh, so crushing. And what happens is... We are made in the image of God, meaning we're meant to be reflecting Him, but often we actually get this backward and we try to get God to reflect us. And so, we make God in our image, or, put another way, we try to 
imagine God and we imagine him, and I'm saying imagine because these aren't real, but we imagine him as unhappy or grumpy with us, with life, with your mistakes or your failures. He's just, he's just wearing this cosmic frown upon you that he's punishing or vindictive, that things have happened in your life, not the way you wanted, because God is giving you what you deserve. These are nothing more than imaginations about God. These are not true. These are idols of God. And yes, if I saw God this way, it would be incredibly heavy. Um, some of us see God as demanding or commanding. All we hear are his rules, his laws, the limitations, what we're not allowed to do as Christians. The world's having so much more fun. Look what I've given up. You're not following God as he is. That is a God you've made in your own imagination. Some of us imagine God is like a big brother hovering over us, or like Santa Claus, you know, knows everything we've done. He's checking the list, see who's naughty and nice. Uh, that's, that's not God either. Or that God is stingy. He's withholding. You know, he's blessing everybody else around you, but not you. Because for some reason, you're just not walking close enough. You haven't prayed enough. You don't know the Bible well enough. Or you skipped church for a month because life just got hectic. Or you were just burned out of people. Or you had all this anxiety and you just didn't want to leave the house. Or whatever it is that somehow God's withholding from you. A stingy God is more of a reflection of humanity than it is of the actual true divinity. God is not stingy. The New Testament goes out of its way to show us he's not stingy. He's a God of grace, which means he's overflowing with goodness and abundance. And grace, charis in Greek, literally means gift. God is a gift giver. He's not stingy. He's generous. He's overflowing. It's just a constant stream of goodness to those who are willing to open their lives to him. So, in relation to this, in the message, I had mentioned that we are made in the image of God, right? He's not in our image, we're in his image. And the word image, uh, uh, zelim, if I remember right, zelim in Hebrew, is also used to refer, it's one of many words, to refer to idolatry. And so you could say that we were made in the image of God. We were made his idols. Now, we probably haven't heard it put that way before. And it may have shocked some people to hear it put that way. And I got, um, I got a question from someone who asked, so I just need help clarifying like what that means. I don't think you're saying that God is in the business of making other gods or that we are gods. And no, 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 that isn't what we're saying. But um, as a result of that question, it made me think, you know what? There's a lot more we could say about this idolatry business, about being made in the image of God. And I'm going to next week, the next message, actually go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and examine what it has to say about being made in the image of God and living in that role and idolatry and how all this clashes and it makes a mess. Idolatry spoils, it mars, it corrupts the image of God. And, and that's what I was, 
um, I guess I just, you know, dropped, I guess, too much in too little time. But, like, God made us as his images. It's as if the universe is his temple and we are the idol. Not that we are a God ourselves, but we are his representatives to the creation. Much of the same way that a, a, a statue becomes the representation of the deity it resembles for the worshipers. It's almost like this this link, right? between the invisible God and the worshipers. That's what God has made humans as, is we are the link between God and creation. Or put in another way, and it actually is in Genesis, um, we are his priests. And we are therefore the go-betweens between God and creation. We are representing God's rule and organization over creation, and we are bringing creation's praise back to God. So, this is what Jesus becomes when we had fallen. He becomes that middle ground between God and creation. He represents God to us, and he represents our praises to God. And the New Testament goes on to say, uh, look at First Peter chapter 2, and Revelation in a couple places reiterates this, that he has made us into a kingdom of priests, or a royal priesthood. That in Jesus, our place as the image of God, as the representatives of God to the world and the world to God, has been restored in the church, in Jesus. And so, real short, um, that's, that's what I mean by that, um, that we are the idols of God. Not that we are literal idols, but what, but what we see is that idolatry becomes a corruption of God's original intent. We, through idolatry, elevate the creation to our place where we were the go-between. Now creation is suddenly the go-between between us and God. We've got everything out of order. And in that um, disorganization, we stepping out of the role God's given us has created a vacuum. And another power has assumed it. A sinister, evil, dark power. I don't want to give away too much of Sunday's message, but that is partly what we're going to talk about. How idolatry becomes what the New Testament begins to talk about, spiritual warfare, and how Christ has conquered this, and why we're on this earth and what we're supposed to be doing. Um, right now, it's a mess. You should see. I have, I have a whiteboard filled with dozens upon dozens of scriptural references. And this is like the fifth version of the whiteboard. So, uh, it's, it's, hopefully it's going to come out clear and I'm really, really, really excited to share. This is one of my favorite ways to teach is to, sh- is to trace themes throughout the entirety of scripture. And so looking forward to it. So hope that, um, this has been indeed helpful in your growth and, uh, that, that maybe has cleared up some questions. Um, but there'll be more to come. Uh, but I'm, what I'm going to do, since this episode is super short, I'm actually going to give you guys an excerpt from an archive from a previous message. This was back not that long ago, only in November. It was on it was when we covered Second Kings chapter 17, and there we're told that Israel falls to the Assyrians. So this is the northern kingdom. This is before the Babylonians take Jerusalem. It's the northern half of Israel falls to the Assyrians in 722 BC. And that's more than a year before Israel falls to the Babylon, or I'm sorry, Judah and Jerusalem fall to the Babylonians. Um, 
And Second Kings chapter 17 tells us why they fell. It's because of idolatry. And so I'd like to play this clip where we talk about that idolatry. And um, the message was called How Idolatry Works. And I take us through four ways idolatry ruins us. Here's how idolatry works. Because we have a hard time recognizing it, especially when it's been in our lives for a long time. Because we go around saying, of course the sky is blue. It's always been blue. If an idol is in your life for a long... You say, of course that's in my life. That's not an idol. I call that a hobby. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to see. We need to step back and look at how how exactly does idolatry work? Because no one in here, I assume, if I, if I represent an idol to you guys, be like, hey... Look at this beautiful blue idol. Who wants to worship this night? We can start our own church. You don't have to come here anymore and hear me. We can let Ron lead this cult right here. Who's going to sign up? And he's like, ah, it's not, it's not even very pretty. It has cute little kid stickers on it. Like, most of us aren't lured by that. So how exactly does idolatry work? How does Israel get to the point where they're worshiping Baal and all these other gods that they're accused of? How how does that work? Idolatry works. There's four steps that I sensed happening as I examined myself, culture, and what I just read and see in the Bible about idolatry. I think idolatry works by seeking four things from us. Or to do four things to us. First, idolatry seeks to seduce us. Idolatry seeks to seduce us. Like Hansel and Gretel, they were seduced. The witch knew how to get a child into her door. Give him candy. And that's what we teach all our kids, right? If a stranger offers you candy, because it works. But here's what's interesting about seduction and the illustration in the story is that I think we often guard against ideas and beliefs and doctrines, and so we think that we're protecting ourselves by making our brains more intelligent about God, but really, the way idolatry works is it doesn't try to steal your ideas. Idolatry tries to steal your loves and your desires and your affections. Because idolatry is seductive. It's not intellectual. It's after your senses and through the senses. Like candy. It tastes good. It gets into, it gets to your heart through the body, through the senses. That's how it works. And often the problem for us is that we're very good at training our minds to love Christ, but we're not always good at training our affections for Christ. And the truth is, we can believe, I can brainwash you guys. I can download, maybe one day, we can download information to our heads and say, this is what you need to believe and know. And now we all have it. But the bottom line is, that's not going to change our behavior. Because it's our desires that drive our actions. Information alone can't change my desires. I read this startling quote. I'm going to read it to you. It's, it's referring to the mall as one of the major temples of idolatry in our culture. It's really interesting reading its entirety. I'll talk a little bit about it on the B-side podcast. Um, but for now, let this suffice. Quote, the mall is a religious site. Not because it is theological, 
but because it is liturgical, and by liturgical he means it has enacted practices, its spiritual significance and threat isn't found in its ideas or its messages, but in its rituals. The mall doesn't care what you think, but it is very much interested in what you love. Victoria's secret is that she's actually after your heart. And when I read that, I said, whoa, mind blown to smithereens. This is so true. And when we watch film and when we look at society, what we're used to defending against is saying, what does it want me to believe? And we say, oh yeah, I don't believe that, I don't buy that. But actually, we should be asking, what does this film, what does this product, what does this thing want me to love? That's what we need to be guarding against. You see, idolatry's goal is to get you and I to visualize a picture of the good life. What is the good life? And once we see a vision of the good life, you will desire it. And that desire will drive everything you do toward that vision of the good life. Now, the Bible gives us a vision of the good life. Jesus called it the kingdom of God. That is the biblical vision of the good life. But we live in a society where retirement might be the vision of the good life. Or driving this car Or having enough money to splurge at the mall every time I'm depressed. Or being able to eat every single food on the menu regardless of the calories and what it's made of. And have no physical consequences. Or the good life is being able to fit in a bikini during the summer. Or the good life is being able to have sexual liberty to be with whoever I want to be, whenever I want to be, however many times I want to be. There are so many visions of the good life. And as soon as we see something that captures our imagination, it then causes us to desire it. That's when you have an idol. And that's when you have a problem. Is when you have a vision of the good life that is not the kingdom of God. Because now your heart will be driven in that direction. No matter what you believe. So idolatry works by first seeking to seduce your desires. Second, Idolatry works by seeking to normalize your desires. Notice what it said in the text all over the place. Normalizing the desires. It says in verse 8, they walked in the customs of the nations. Um, and in the middle of verse 11, it says that they did as the nations did. Verse 15, in the middle, they went after false idols and became false and they followed the nations. And then we saw it emphasized in verse 21. When uh, Nebat had torn Israel from this house of David, they made Jeroboam, oh, excuse me, uh, when God had torn them, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king and Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sins And the people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did, and they did not depart from them. Okay. So idolatry wants to normalize itself in your life. So what what do we see the narrator telling us Israel did? But, 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 But all the nations do this. This is normal to worship Baal and to have the high places and to sacrifice our children and so forth. 
This is what everybody on the planet, except for those Judeans down in Jerusalem, it's what everybody does. It's normal. Idolatry wants you to believe that. So this is where it gets really hard, is because some things in society and in the lives around us, and even in the church, are normal. And we wouldn't even think of questioning them. And, and here's one danger, is that we have something, and rather than calling it what it is, like the prophet does, we, we give it a nickname. Oh, no, 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 that's just, it's just a little vice. You know how, we, how many times people throw out the word, this is my vice, and we kind of just, it's like, I know I shouldn't do it, but it's not really a sin, it's just something I, I don't know, people throw that word around like, oh, I listen to, that movie's my vice, or ice cream is my vice, or whatever it is. But but we we got to be careful, or it's my hobby, or it's just a stress relief, or it's a it's a season, it's a stage, it's a phase. When we nickname our activity and our desire, you're normalizing it. Let's 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 rob it of its powerful word sin, and let's just give it a nickname. And when you give something a nickname, it means you have affection for it. It means you're accepting it. When I give a student a nickname. That's usually a good sign for the student. Unless it's Bozo or something mean, but don't stay in my head, right? <laughs> See, when we give a nickname, it means we accept them, we have affection toward them. And we need to be careful of those things that we are unwilling to call what they are. It's not pornography, it's an aid for my sexual life. Though that's that's common, that's very common. See, right there, what idolatry wants us to do is to normalize itself in our lives. So first, it seeks to seduce us. It seeks to normalize. Then third, it wants to consume. It wants to consume. First, it wants you to believe that it is offering something for you to consume. Man, I just... Oh, and you're seduced by something you can take. Like, oh, wow, I get to have this. I get to feel that. I get to partake of that. And friends, this is where it's dangerous is because America is by definition a consumerism society. We run on consuming things. And we need to be careful that what we consume doesn't become an idol. Because the idol wants you to feel like you're the God and it is your servant. Here, let me give you more candy. Here's some hot cocoa. Here's a nice bed for you children. Wow, let me receive this. Let me take this. Let me, whoa, I feel I'm being pampered like a king. But what we have to be careful of is that the more and more we consume without any awareness, it's getting us fatter so that we sit comfortably in the status quo. And that's when everything gets normalized, right? Oh, no, no, it's fine. Don't make me get up, please. I feel so comfortable with this bonbon bucket on my lap. But it's only letting us consume its goods so that it can then turn around when we're fat enough and can't run to consume us. That's the goal. Yes, sin might have its pleasure. It's only so that you won't move when it strikes. That's its goal. And you, and you noticed, you noticed how it said Israel, verse 15, they went after vanity idols and became vain. It's hollowness is what that word is. A breath. It's like how a wind has nothing substantial. 
How a breath, a mist, a vapor, smoke is like here and it's gone and there's no substance to it. You can see through it. They were shallow. They were a husk, a shell with no substance. That's what happened because their gods consumed them in turn. Yeah. It's dangerous. And then you have no power because you've given it everything. And that's when the fourth and final thing that happens to us in idolatry occurs is that you're enslaved. You're enslaved because now you have absolutely no substance left and you're stuck. And that's what happened to Israel. They fall enslaved to the Assyrians. They're exiled from their true purpose and from their true identity. And so will you. No longer a child of God, you're a child of this thing which you served because you thought you could control it. You thought I could normalize it. I'm consuming it, but in the turn, in the end it consumed you. And now you're enslaved to it because you have no strength left because you've given everything to it. How does idolatry work? It seeks to seduce us. It seeks to normalize its presence. It seeks to consume us and then finally enslave us and exile us. So careful we need to be. And I wonder if the things that we're in a habit of consuming, of turning to, is because there's unaddressed pain in our life, or fear, or anger, or whatever whatever the journalists are throwing at us, and we say, ah, I don't know what to do, I don't know what's going on in my life, and so we turn to other things to make us feel better. Menahem, it was in chapter 15, verse 19, when Paul, the king of Assyria, came. Remember, Menahem pulled out a bunch of silver to give to the king. And I couldn't help but see that that's you and I. When the threats come and the pain is present in our life, we pull out our cash and throw money at our problems. We say, well, this will make me feel better. This will make me look better. This will help me ignore this. If I busy myself with this project, this hobby, this activity, that'll be fine. And look, most of the time, there are cases where it can be sin. But I think for most of us, maybe we're not running to prostitutes or or porn or drugs or alcohol. Uh, most of the time, at least, maybe we're running to other things to get our minds off of what's going on, to take the edge off of our pain so that we ignore all these things. And we're, what happens is we, like a tr- classic American consumers, we throw money at these things because it makes us feel good about ourselves and our lives and our problems. And we're fine with it because like journalists, we're not willing to go where the prophet goes. Like, oh no, I'm just not comfortable with that. So we go toward this. This just makes me feel better. But really, if we look deep inside, we would realize we're throwing money away because we're not addressing the true problem within. We don't want to name the things that are there. We don't want to name things like I haven't forgiven Sarah for what she said or Bill for what he did. And my lack of forgiving them is boiling something unsettling in my heart. And what I do to deal with that is I throw silver at these things because they help me feel normalized. Friends, we, we need, we need the Jeremiah's. So good, we're going to that book next. We need the Jeremiah's, the Isaiah's, the Ezekiel's. We need the prophets to speak radically in our lives to say, Yeah, yeah, we could talk about which king did which policy, but the true problem is, verse 7, that Israel sinned. 
And where am I not following or listening to God? So we don't need to keep paying off our pain. What we need is a phrase I've become very fond of recently because I've been thinking about this more than I have recently. By recently, I mean the last few years of my life. Um, It's the spiritual disciplines. And the spiritual disciplines are simply a set of practices which Christians have done for thousands of years to keep their affections in the kingdom of God. But we've kind of minimized these because we think that all we need to do is go to church and sing emotional songs and hear messages that make me think, oh, that's interesting. Oh, now I know a verse or two. And then we go home, we do this the rest of our lives unthinkingly and just kind of go with the status quo. Well, Jeroboam did this, so here I go. But the spiritual disciplines are meant to shape us. They're meant to shape us, to give us rhythms of life so that our affections gravitate around the center of gravity called the kingdom of heaven. They pull us in. They keep us there. And there's so many that you can name. But I just want to, for time's sake, um, for brevity's sake, I want to share three that are very important to me that I think combat the sins we see here. Three disciplines we can begin to develop in our lives The first is repentance or confession. I've mentioned this recently, especially when we looked at King David and his sin, but confession is not popular in America anymore. We are so used to seeing leaders stand up and deny all charges. I never did that, even though we all know they did. We're so used to that. We begin to say this ourselves. I didn't do that. Nope, that didn't happen. Nope, nope. But what happens when we confess, when we come together as a fellowship and we take communion and we say, God, I'm sorry for this. We do what the prophet does and we actually give a name to that which we've been ignoring. Israel's like, oh no, the king's policies, that's why we fell. But the prophet's like, no, it's sin. And then when we confess before God, like, I lied, I lusted, I hated, I slandered, I gossiped. And we say these vicious, ugly words. We're now breaking out of the mainstream journalism and we're starting to listen to the prophet and actually call things for what they are. It's no longer normalized as, oh yeah, I was telling a juicy story. It was, I gossiped, I slandered, I murdered that person's reputation. And now we have to confront that and say, yep, I did that. And confession, yep, that'll keep you from being seduced because... Instead of the children calling it a house of candy in our dreams, it's now a house of fattening sugar so that the witch can eat us. <laughs> Confession can change everything when we're willing to give sin its proper name. The second spiritual discipline. Silence. 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 We're a culture that doesn't like silence. We like noise and sound. But silence is about creating space to hear the scriptures, to hear the spirit. That's what silence gives to us. So that we can then discern the status quo and we can learn how to unravel it in our lives. We need to listen in silence. Because notice how Israel, it told us in verse 14, the prophets spoke, but they would not listen. So we need that space to listen to sermons, to scripture, to the spirit. 
And then we will be set in the right direction. And we will hear God tell us, you say it's that, but this is what it is. Don't normalize this. Don't say, but it's what society, everyone's doing it. It's just a phase. No, this silence can teach us that. And then finally, so we have um, repentance, we have silence, we have third, and finally we have fasting. Now, there was a time when I was young and in youth group, and we had forced fasts. (laughs) We were locked in the youth room, spent all night, and there was no food anywhere. They vacuumed the carpet spotlessly, lest you find a crumb of a cookie under a chair. Like, or the gum underneath the seat. (gasps) Food! (laughs) You get, a a teenager fasting is a miracle. That we didn't eat each other might be even more miraculous. 72 hour fast, that was, no, 24. 36 hours, 36 hour fast, locked in the room, like it was crazy. And, the, and then the ch- they bring in the pizza and the chips, like, oh, sorry, I came an hour early. You got to just smell it and sit with it, you know. So I remember fasting as a teenager and going, yeah, I mean, I get the point of this, but honestly, this is making me a worse person because I'm grumpier. I don't like who I am when I'm hungry. So I gave up on fasting for years until this year. Brittany and I decided, you know what? Let's just try small fasts once in a while and see what happens. And it's actually really cool. I mean, it's hard, but it's really great because we get in touch with our impulses. Because when you don't give in to your impulse and you resist it, you begin to figure things out about yourself and what you're drawn to. And you get to watch that rather than just, I'm going with the flow, Jeroboam did it, right? You're not doing that anymore. You actually have to resist and you have to pay attention. And yes, it can be something like food. That's a typical one. But you can you can fast a lot of things just to abstain from it. But it teaches you about more than food. Like, yes, I learned what I desire and what I crave when I'm hungry and how to control that. But also it begins to show me deeper within my impulses for all other kinds of things I lust for and grab for. Fasting is an excellent discipline to teach us not to jump at the first house made of sugar and candy we find in the forest. This is Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude. I thank you for listening.